0: Good evening, and welcome to Electric Dreams, featuring Bonaparte for Wednesday, July the 12th. I am your host, Bonaparte, your blind skeleton, and you have found your way to my quaint, cozy virtual cottage in the digital countryside. Welcome. Electric Dreams is my opportunity to share with you some very early music recordings from the original era of electrically recorded songs. Prior to about 1926 or 1927, music was recorded in a purely analog manner. It was not much different from tying two cups together with a string to talk through them, like a lot of us did in school as a really fun thing to do. In about the mid-1920s, sound engineers at both Columbia and Victor discovered how to harness the power of the vacuum tube to electrically amplify volume through a microphone. This opened up a world of new possibilities for recording sounds and music. It made recording not only easier, but it gave the final recording a much wider range and better sound all around. This show is intended to share songs from this early era of electric recording, from about 1927 to 1937, when further improvements in both recording, storage materials, and playback were introduced. So, sit back, relax, close your eyes, and let yourself be transported back in time with me to the first half of last century. We're going to start with a song from a fellow named Guy Lombardo. Guy Lombardo was born on June 19, 1902. He was a prominent Canadian-American bandleader, musician, and conductor, who really did become synonymous with the glitz and glamour of the big band era. Lombardo and his orchestra, known as the Royal Canadians, were renowned for their captivating performances and were often referred to as the sweetest music this side of heaven. Lombardo's unique musical style really did a very good job of blending traditional pop at the time, jazz and dance music, and his smooth arrangements really did appeal to a wide audience. One of his greatest achievements was his annual New Year's Eve broadcasts, which began in 1929 and became a beloved tradition for millions of people worldwide. The broadcasts featured Lombardo and his orchestra playing their signature song, Old Lang Syne, as the clock struck midnight, marking the transition into the new year. He had a very warm and inviting personality, and combined with this enchanting music, really didn't make those broadcasts a staple in households across America and Canada and beyond. Throughout his career, Lombardo released numerous hit records, performed in very famous venues, such as the Roosevelt Grill in New York City, and really did leave a mark on the world of music. One of his more popular songs of the 1930s was Under the Moon. It was a romantic ballad, of course, performed by Lombardo and his Canadians. The song was written by Benny Davis and Joe Burke. And featured the vocals of Carmen Lombardo, Guy's brother. The lyrics expressed the longings of a lover who waits for his sweetheart under the moonlight, hoping to see her again. The melody was catchy and soothing, with a gentle swing rhythm that made it easy to dance to. It was a hit for Lombardo, and it became one of the songs that made him a household name and really a favorite of radio listeners and ballroom dancers. A few years ago, I had the luxury of attending a murder mystery at a nearby historical house. It was all decked out as if it was 1930s, and they had music like this playing over one of the radios, and it was really a lot of fun. And listening to this music always brings me back to that time, and I can really picture myself in that type of garb, wearing the clothes, eating the food. I'm really having a good time. I think I was born in the wrong time. So we're going to move on to something a little bit different, not quite so swingy. And we're going to listen to a song from Leopold Stokowski and the Philadelphia Orchestra. Leopold Stokowski was, of course, the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra in the early 20th century. In fact, he was the director from nineteen twelve to nineteen thirty eight, so he really did cover a few eras of music with them. Stakowski was very good at what he did. He ended up transforming the ensemble into a powerhouse of innovation and virtuosity. Uh, it the Philadelphia Orchestra turned from a really a local Orchestra into something that was much larger than they could have imagined even ten years before then His time with the orchestra was marked by a series of groundbreaking achievements and artistic collaborations They were known for their innovative programming at the time. They incorporated contemporary works alongside the classical repertoire that orchestras played at the time and still his commitment, Stokowski's commitment to presenting new and challenging music led to the American premieres of numerous compositions, including works by Stravinsky, Rachmaninoff, and Mahler. Uh, he was also a champion of American composers. He commissioned and conducted premieres of works by Samuel Barber, Aaron Copland, and a number of others. Stokowski's, Stokowski really had a good ability to interpret music, and he had an emphasis on tonal beauty and expressive playing. Uh, His leadership brought the Philadelphia Orchestra international acclaim, and his meticulous attention to detail and his dynamic conducting style really created a unique synergy between the conductor and the musicians, and it resulted in performances that were electrifying and emotionally charged. When you have a very good working relationship with your musicians and your band, you're really able to take one or two or three steps above and beyond, and they were able to do that. Of course, Stokowski was also a pioneer in recording, leading the orchestra to produce a series of really iconic recordings that became benchmarks of the classical music repertoire. Even in the late tens, when music recording was still in its infancy with just the very basics, Uh, he and the Philadelphia Orchestra were able to put together some magnificent recordings that even today still sound absolutely fantastic. Now, beyond his artistic contributions, Stokowski had a very charismatic persona, a flair for showmanship, and it... It made him beloved. People loved to watch the orchestra and watch him. He was known for his very flamboyant appearance. He'd often wore flowing capes and vests during performances. And his stage presence and ability to connect not with not just with his musicians, but with the audiences really helped popularize classical music and bring it to a wider audience. A lot of us of my age and even younger, whether they're aware of it or not, have likely heard a number of his performances and recordings with the orchestra through Looney Tunes, which used a lot of the Philadelphia Orchestra recordings under Stokowski in their cartoons. Now, what we're going to listen to from the Philadelphia Orchestra under Stokowski is Toccata and Fugue which specifically refers to Johann Sebastian Bach's composition Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Uh, It's a very renowned piece of classical music that a lot of people have heard, whether they're aware of the name or not. It was composed during the Baroque period. The composition showcases Bach's mastery of very intricate counterpoint and his ability to create very complex musical structures. Uh, It's considered one of his most famous works, and it really has become synonymous with the grandeur and mystique of the organ of all things. And I'm sure when you hear it, you'll immediately recognize it. The composition is divided into two sections, the Toccata and the Fugue. The Toccata is characterized by fast and virtuosic passages, and it serves as an elaborate and improvisatory introduction. It features rapid scale tr- runs, dramatic chords, and cascading appraggios, all of which display the brilliance of the performer. The toccata section builds up anticipation and sets the stage for the fugue. The fugue, on the other hand, is highly structured and contrapuntal from where different melodic lines, known as voices, interweave and imitate each other. This is really where the Baroque comes into view. It's the the entire piece, Toccata and Fugue in D minor, is complex, it's intricate, and it has some really nice overlapping melodies with each voice having its own distinct character. The Fugue subject is introduced in one voice and then taken up by subsequent voices creating a sense of musical dialogue and development. Sorry, my cat just walked into the room. The dramatic and mysterious nature of Toccata and Fugue in D minor has made it a popular choice for various adaptations and performances. The version that we're listening to is, of course, by Tchaikovsky and the Philadelphia Orchestra, uh, this particular version, you know, is a has a lot of richness and precision to it. Stokowski would not allow anything less than that to be recorded under his tenure. Uh, the recording itself is noticeable, notable for Stokowski's very innovative approach to orchestration, where he sought to enhance the organ's presence through the orchestra. Now, the version that we're listening to is, of course a 78 rpm recording on shellac from the nineteen twenties. Now at the time seventy-eight rpm records were limited in by their groove size and their obviously speed of playing. So a 12 inch shellac record, a 12 inch 78 RPM record was limited to about four and a half minutes of music per side. This version of Toccata and Fugue is much longer than that, so it's recorded on both sides of the record. So we will have Toccata and Fugue Part 1, and then we'll enjoy Part 2. is definitely one that will be played closer to halloween on our halloween shows as well so we're going to do about a 180 turn from stakowski and toccata and fugue to paul whiteman paul whiteman was a band leader and composer and orchestral director much like stakowski was Uh, he was um, born in 1890 and also played a pivotal role In the popularization of music, but as opposed to classical music, he really helped popularize jazz and the big band sound. Paul Whiteman was, in fact, known as the king of jazz during the 1920s uh, due to his very successful band and innovative dance orchestras at the time. Uh, He was able to bridge the gap between jazz and symphonic music, infusing popular tunes with elements of classical arrangements and orchestrations. He had an ensemble of very, very talented musicians. They presented very polished performances, uh, very elaborate, elaborate orchestrations, and they did have a diverse repertoire. It included jazz, popular songs, and it did. Ha- they did have some symphonic compositions as well, but nothing quite like we have just heard. Uh, his live performances showcased a blend of musical genres, which audiences really, really did enjoy. And it was his approach which began to set the stage for the big band era of the late 20s and 30s. The song that we've got coming up for you is Washboard Blues, It's a notable jazz song that was recorded by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra in 1927. It was written by Hoagy Carmichael and Fred B. Callahan. Uh, They were both writers that were very popular in the Tin Pan Alley era as well. Wrote a number of songs that ended up in the Great American Songbook. This particular song, Washboard Blues, captures the essence of the Roaring Twenties, you know, with a very lively spirit behind it. Now, it was one of Whiteman's more popular recordings, and it really does let the, the ensemble and the band showcase their distinctive sound. It's, a, it's an infectious melody. It's got some lively instrumentation behind it, and they do weave together a number of different instruments that I'm sure that you will enjoy, including the use of the washboard, played by one Harry Buddy Gumperts.
1: To that portion, open down, to that what I want, oh hand oh, 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 oh Lord, he's so weary of turban places So weary of turban and gold up to that portion open down, to that what I want. Never get me gone from here. Rub them dirty clothes all oh year. Them clothes, them musty clothes, them raggedy clothes, them grindy clothes, that's all I know. Up and down, back and forth, all year long. Oh so Lordy, won't you hear my song? Hear my song. Shanty on the shore, the river swinging on by the door. Hear that river lowly calling, I could hear the nights a falling. Hear that river lowly moaning, moaning low. I'm going to that river, going down to that river someday. Herbie, herbie, day, herbie, day, herbie. I'm going to that river, going down to that river someday. Throw myself, my poor so far away, oh Lord. Must I keep rubbing, must I keep drubbing, must I keep rubbing, must I keep keep I'm older boys. But I'm going to that river, going down to that river someday.
0: We are now halfway through our show. If you're listening live, thank you so much for joining in tonight. If you're listening via the podcast at some later time after it's live, Thank you for listening in. I do certainly appreciate it. A lot of the shows that we do stream, whether it is Three Tune Tuesday or Electric Dreams, have themes behind them. This week's theme happens to be simply music that I enjoy. Uh, There's no rhyme nor reason to it other than songs that I happen to enjoy. There is the theme for the week. So I would like to take this opportunity, as I move some records around and make some changes, to remind you all that we do have a very interactive website. BlindSkeleton.1 has a number of things. It has a database, a searchable database, of all of the Blind Skeleton records. All of the songs that we play on these shows do come from our library. We do not play any re-recorded songs or pre-recorded songs, except in a few exceptional circumstances, um, with those being those records that we have that are incredibly old and incredibly fragile. We will have recorded them once and then put them aside for safekeeping. For the most part, however, all the songs we play come from the collection. We play them live, and you hear them about as I hear them. We do have the database. It is searchable. I do encourage all of you to go browse it. If you find a song that you like, send in a request. I will play it when the appropriate show arrives. And I will certainly give you credit for it. And that brings us to the next part of the mid-show advertisement. we do have our sister brand, which helps us keep paying the bills. And that is Skeleton Brew Coffee findable at skeletonbrew.coffee. Should you find a song that you like, send in a request and we play it, we'll ship you back a coupon for 10% off in thanks. Uh, Beyond that, we do have some active social media all on the website. Please do hunt us down. Like us, share us, yada, yada, yada. You know how it all goes. Spread the good, blind skeleton word. Moving on. Up next, we have the Dark the Darktown Strutters Ball, recorded by Ted Lewis. Ted Lewis was another band leader. He was a clarinetist and vocalist, and he rose to prominence like most of the other artists that we are listening to tonight in the 20s and 30s. He had a distinctive singing style, very energetic performances, and his catchphrase was, Is everybody happy? He formed his band, the aptly named Ted Lewis Orchestra, in the early 1910s. And they gained popularity through heavy live performances. A lot of these bands played constantly. That was how they became well-known. They ultimately ended up recording. Ted Lewis did a lot of recording for the Columbia label, which is what this next song is recorded on. The orchestra's style blended elements of jazz and ragtime and even vaudeville, and it ended up appealing to a wide audience in such a way. Ted Lewis himself um, was quite a, a clarinet virtuoso, and he had a very charismatic persona, and he became the face of the band in addition to the name of the band, and he was very well loved in the industry. A lot of their songs, like a lot of good jazz songs, featured a lot of instrumental solos. They had a spirited ensemble. Uh, the playing was very infectious, and it made people get up and dance. Additionally, the orchestra frequently had come well, let me rephrase this, he often sang. He had a very distinctive gravelly voice, and it kind of became his trademark along with his question is everyone happy hits like me and my shadow tiger rag and when my baby smiles at me propelled the band to national fame beyond their musical talent however the orchestra was known for very extravagant stage shows Um, it was a visual spectacle lewis had a top hat which kind of became his trademark carried a cane, walked around with a cane on stage, and had a very lively personality. Now, the song itself, The Darktown Strutter's Ball, is a jazz composition. It was written by Shelton Brooks in 1917, and it was popularized primarily by Ted Lewis during the 1920s, although it was recorded and performed by a number of other bands of the day, including the original Dixieland Jazz Band, who recorded it acoustically prior to the 1920s, as well as Red Nichols and his Five Pennies, which is another one of the best band names of the era. The song, The Dark Town Strutter's Ball, is characterized by a catchy melody, lively tempo, good rhythm, um, very reminiscent of jazz at the time. So here is Ted Lewis doing... Darktown Strudger's Ball. One of my favorite bands of the era is the original Dixieland Jazz Band. I mentioned it briefly in the preface to the last song. I have a number of their songs in the collection, and I enjoy each and every one of them. The ODJB, for short, is known today, in fact, for performing and recording the first official release of a jazz song on record in 1917. And when they recorded the Livery Stable Blues, that is considered the first recorded jazz song ever. Uh, Yesterday on Three Tune Tuesday, I even played one of their other songs, Margie. I do like them a lot. They're a lot of fun. Uh, The jazz band's recordings were groundbreaking in that they fused African-American musical traditions such as ragtime and blues, with European military band influences. They had a really distinctive style to them. Uh, As you can imagine what a Dixieland jazz band might be live, they were very lively, and they became the prototype for early jazz music. The recordings played a crucial role in popularizing jazz beyond its original roots in New Orleans. The band went through two different name changes in their existence. The original Dixieland Jazz Band initially and originally performed under the name the original Dixieland Jazz Band, with jazz spelled with two S's. It was at the time the contemporary spelling of the word jazz. The use of that was short-lived, however, and the band quickly began to use the more modern spelling of jazz in their name the original Dixieland jazz band ultimately in the 20s after coming back from Europe and a tour of Europe they changed their name to the original Dixieland 5 uh, jazz music was gaining popularity and recognition and several other bands began to use the term jazz in their names as well so the Dixieland group wanted to differentiate themselves and protect their brand so they changed their name to the original Dixieland 5. The song that we have is Barnyard Blues. It's a novelty tune with a Dixieland swing beat to it. It was originally recorded in 1917 by the original Dixieland jazz band, and it's been covered by a number of other artists over the years as well. The song does have a humorous take on the sounds of farm animals, And it, of course, features a lot of their improvisation. After they returned from Europe and primarily England, they began to re-record some of their earlier songs using the new recording techniques and technology that was available. And this was one of the songs that they re-recorded. This was recorded in 1936. I just made the cardinal mistake of not queuing up the next song, so you're going to have to bear with me while I walk away from my script and try and keep you entertained while I change my next song. What we have coming up next is a song from the Victor Symphony Orchestra. The Victor Symphony Orchestra was... It was a house band that was run by the Victor Talking Machine Company, but they were much more than that. The... The organization really did a very good job of hunting down some of the best musicians of the era to record a number of songs for them. And not only did they record, they did in fact also tour and were very quite popular at the time. There was the Victor Symphony Orchestra, there was the Victor Light Opera, and there were a couple of others that all really did a very good job at what they did. The song that we have recorded here is Liebestrom. It was compro- composed by the Hungarian composer Franz Liszt. It was originally officially entitled Liebestrom Nocturno Number no. 3, and it was a set of three nocturnes written between 1840 and 1850 by Liszt. Liebestrom is known for its very enchanting melody and expressive qualities. And now that I've got the song all lined up, we are going to get it played. And that brings us just about to the end of our show for the night. Thank you all for listening in, whether it is live or on the podcast, I do definitely appreciate it. I do encourage each of you to go hunt us down on social media or on Twitter as at skeleton underscore one. Do like us, share us, spread the good blind skeleton word. We have Benny Goodman coming up next with his version of St. Louis Blues to bring us in through the end of the show. Thank you all again for listening in. I hope you have a fantastic night.